Hi, and welcome to another episode of Talk Rehab. I'm Bill Nolting, and today I'm talking with Susan Johnson-Taylor, an experienced and passionate occupational therapist, a true advocate for independence. Susan currently holds the position of Director of Training and Education for New Motion. She has a deep background as a practicing OT, an educator, a researcher, consultant, seasoned presenter, and a published author. She's a dedicated client-first clinician. Before we start, let me read a paragraph that I lifted from her profile. The more I did with technical aids, as they were called then, the more I loved it. I loved the immediacy of technology. I remember working with a little girl, Connie, who had Morchio's syndrome. She was unable to functionally move anything except her head. We evaluated her for powered mobility and environmental control, a do-it system. She was immediately able to drive her wheelchair and turn on her TV and radio. She was thrilled. I was too. Let's listen to Susan. There's a lot to learn here. So again, thank you for doing this. Let me start with saying that over the course of your illustrious career, you've worked for providers and manufacturers. You worked at the Shepherd Center, RIC. You've done a lot, starting, I think, at the Cripple Children's Hospital School in Memphis. And now you've worked for New Motion for five years. Tell me about that journey and how you ended up where you are and why. Oh my, I've been I've been thinking a lot about this since we initially talked. And starting out at the politically incorrect crippled children's hospital school, right, uh, <laughs> which yeah. is which is what it was actually called. Um, I had graduated from Boston University, and my now husband was already had been transferred to Memphis. And so I moved from Boston to Memphis after we got married, after I graduated and found myself in, uh, this was late 1979, it's such a different, but very interesting culture. And this particular hospital school, I mean, I can't even think of a better place to start, had all kinds of kids with all kinds of interesting things going on and friendly parents and it was just, it was a great place to start. Um, the building next door happened to house the University of Tennessee Rehab Engineering Program. So I did a little tour and, you know, this was 1980 by now. Mm-hmm. And they had, <laughs> I mean, if you looked at them nowadays, you'd think, wow, that's the biggest augmentative communication device I've ever seen. Doing re- they were doing research into seating, into mobility, into augmentative communication, and had a, a huge staff at the time. It was uh, one of the federal grant um, rehab engineering center funded centers. I was amazed. I had never seen anything like that before. And they said, hey, you want to do a seating clinic for us? And I said, sure, like any other you know, 23-year-old would and uh, not knowing really what a seating clinic was. <laughs> right. So eventually, about a year and a half down the road, I just, I just went to work for the University of Tennessee and stayed there until about 1990. I mean, it was just by sure luck, falling into a center devoted to service and research with four engineers, three therapists, three OTs and then a speech pathologist was uh, was pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, it's a pretty amazing way to kick off a career in what is now known as assistive technology and what back then were known as technical aids. So you went, so you were, you were 
10 years at the Politically Incorrect Children's Crippled Children's Hospital School, and then you went to the uh, University of Tennessee. No, actually, I was at the, the Crippled Children's Hospital School until about the beginning of 1982, while also working at the University of Tennessee. And then they actually closed. I see. So I just went to the University of Tennessee full time because they had a job opening and then ended up in uh, we got we were transferred to Atlanta. I actually worked as a supplier for a year, <laughs> but found that everybody expected me to be really a therapist. So <laughs> uh, the Shepherd Center had an opening to do part time caseload, part time assistive technology lab and part time uh, seating. So I. Uh, I took them up on that and went there and then eventually just did the seating clinic with David Kreutz. It needed a bit of a clinical break. I mean, between the University of Tennessee and which saw people from all over the Mid-South and the Shepherd Center, the acuity level um, was, was very high. And I think I was a little burnt out and took the opportunity to go teach with Sunrise for a couple of years. And then were transferred to Chicago. <laughs> were you able to stay in Atlanta while you were working for Sunrise? Yes. And kind of at the end of my tenure with Sunrise, we were um, transferred to Chicago. And it just it became easier to not travel um, because at the time we had, oh, let's see, sixth, sixth grader and a junior in high school. Wow. Who were getting used to living in a new place. And I ended up at uh, the Rehab Institute of Chicago, which is now known as the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, and worked in the seating clinic there until 2015. Why did they change their name to the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab? They actually uh, built an entirely new building, which I was not there for the opening of, based on uh, research to clinic and clinic to research and um, wanted the name to reflect the fact that they had a different uh, philosophy at that point. Now that you're the manager of training and education for New Motion, do you miss going to clinics or interacting with patients, or do you still get to do that? I, I miss aspects of it. <laughs> I don't miss seeing seven clients a day. However, um, before COVID, I was traveling a great deal, teaching and doing projects around the country. So um, many therapists around the country are, were kind enough to allow me to come into their clinics and sort of keep my eyes on clients, ask questions. So I was sort of keeping in clinic and with clients um, in that manner. Now I do not travel <laughs> as, as a lot of people don't. And uh, I work primarily on, um, on projects. It seems that New Motion responded to the coronavirus issue pretty fast. What exactly did you do? How did you keep everybody safe and continue to provide products and services? Well, I think, uh, and again, I have to speak for the whole organization. My part was um, was pretty small, relatively speaking. But I mean, the whole organization came together to ensure that the technology was there. Uh, we happened to be deploying Microsoft Teams anyway. Mm -hmm. And then all across the organization, making sure that, you know, like any other supplier, that people had all of the PPE that they needed, that they knew how to use it pretty typical things. And then educationally and operationally, obviously a large group of people set out to ensure the operational aspects and the educational aspects of telehealth as well. Is your role 
pointed at RTSs and getting their credentialing, or is it is it aimed more at referral sources, or both? Um, it's actually aimed at both. And for um, the uh, ATPs, or, or people who wish to become ATPs, or people who are ATPs, um, I work with our uh, ATP development department, which is basically Ann Kieschnick, <laughs> um, uh, on the educational aspects. So she, you know, in the educational realm, it's both the, the ATP supplier aspect and then the clinical education aspects. So we do both. And then, I, and then we also create content and, and teach to therapists as well. So you're making new ATPs? I am assistant making, assisting and making new ATPs, yes. <laughs> That's great. Where do they come from? Are you using technicians? Where does that field come from? Um, I think like uh, like anybody else in in the field, they can come from anywhere. They can be existing techs. They can be therapists in the field who wish to become uh, uh, ATPs. Maybe maybe they'd like to transition from being um, a hands-on therapist to a supplier. So it's it's a it's a variety of, of different sources. You're still involved with Resna. I know you were heavily involved with Resna for years. Are you still there? I was still. I was very, very heavily involved with Resna, um, especially at the beginning when when we were uh, molding it into uh, the organization that it became. I am not as involved. I think. Um, I think as one evolves in one's career, you just. Uh, start going off into, into different paths. Um, occasionally I teach and am involved in the Resna ANSI and ISO standards committee. So to, for those particular projects, yes, but not anything like we used to do in the past. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, tell me about Resna versus NARTS. There are these two trade organizations that seem to be a little different. I've always thought that Resna is sort of the egghead organization, and NARTS is sort of the ethics organization. Tell me how those two organizations work together. The egghead organization, that's funny. This is, this is the way I look at it. RESNA is a multidisciplinary organization, which includes clinicians and researchers and engineers and ATP suppliers, while NARTS is focused um, very clearly on the role and the ethics and the functioning of, of the supplier. I see those as two very different things. I mean, up until NARTS came along, there really wasn't, which was quite a long time ago, there really wasn't a home for ATP suppliers. Uh, there were homes for people who were in the business aspects of, of the field of assistive technology when it was very new, but it became clear uh, somewhere along the line in the 90s that ATP suppliers who specialized in CRT needed a home and a voice. And they needed their credentialing to be able to service Medicare patients at that point. Yes. Early on, that obviously came through um, Resna. And it became clear that there needed to be some baseline credentialing for anybody who wanted to be an assistive technology practitioner. So that's the road that they went down. Yeah. And then later on, um, 
it became part of what uh, Medicare required if somebody wanted to be involved in being a supplier for uh, individuals who have Medicare. What exactly is an OT? How does it differ from a PT in terms of what you have to learn and what you have to do as a practice? The words are different, obviously, occupational therapist, physical therapist, but explain to me the, the real difference. Oh my gosh, Bill. I've, I think I, I feel like I've been explaining that for 41 years. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's fine. You know, it's very interesting. Well, first of all, I went to school eons and centuries ago. So uh, what people were learning back then, I'm sure, is different from what people are learning now. And certainly the educational requirements for both have increased over the years. I mean, when I was in OT school, you went straight for five years and took your exam and you were done. And now, of course, it's at least baseline master's uh, for OT, at least, and then baseline doctor of PT for PTs. So that's, it's, it's, a, it's a very different um, environment. But occupational therapists have traditionally focused more on um, participation and function I mean, obviously, you have to pay attention to strength, range of motion, balance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in relationship to how somebody functions with their activities of daily living. And physical therapists have traditionally been focused more on larger muscle functions, such as walking and transferring, getting around in the community. I mean, these, these are very broad brush, and I don't want to annoy any OTs or PTs because there is sure. a little bit of crossover and a lot of similarities in education. I mean, everybody has to learn neurology, neuroanatomy, anatomy, and things like that. But the, the, the thing has always been that when, you know, we, we all had these long discussions long ago about how when you go into the world of seating and wheeled mobility, you almost become a seating and wheeled mobility therapist, and you have to appreciate the aspects of both OT and PT to be able to look at your client as, as a whole. Mm -hmm. I read that Elaine Treffler influenced you and mentored you. Tell me about that. Oh, yes. Good heavens. She was, um, uh, she and uh, her husband, Doug Hobson, who was an engineer, are the ones that um, started and developed the University of Tennessee Rehab Engineering Program. She is an occupational therapist. Actually, she's, they're both Canadian. She was educated at a time when OTs could become OT and PT, so they got a dual degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, when she started practicing, she became an OT. But, oh my goodness, yes. she. I worked with her at the University of Tennessee um, along with Lynn Monahan Bates for 10 years. There were three of us redheaded OTs, <laughs> you know, sort of working together and figuring things out. Now, she was a bit older than I, I am and uh, therefore had already learned a lot of these things and learned about positioning and was already trying things. So yes, she was a, a fabulous mentor. She dragged me kicking and screaming into presenting immediately. I had no intention of doing anything like that. The University of Tennessee used to put on tons of, of courses and uh, basically it was, you shall teach. Okay, I shall teach. 
And then, of course, got me involved in Resna after my very first Resna in 1984 in Ottawa, Canada. Hmm. So, yes, she was very influential in my development as a CDN World Mobility Occupational Therapist. And did she give you hints about how to teach without hyperventilating? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be fine. Was You'll be fine. Let you know what you're doing. You do this every day. You're, you just talk about what you do with your clients every day. Okay. I'm not really sure if I would have gone that direction had somebody not had somebody not forced me. <laughs> You're in a pretty good position to provide advice to ATPs or RTSs about interacting with their therapist. What can they do to convince therapists that they provide value? That is a very interesting question and uh, one that we ought slash I have thought about for, for many years. Uh, as you can imagine, I have worked with many assistive technology professionals. And of course, an RTS, usually uh, rehab technology suppliers are not necessarily credentialed. And then, of course, the ATPs are credentialed. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Even just at the Rehab Institute of Chicago, I worked with seven different individuals from then five different companies, which then became two different companies. Right. It's a, it's, it's a bit of a hard question because the most important thing I think is to just, is to know your stuff, is to know when you don't know it and say so. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to know it and say so, but then figure it out. Um, either by yourself, with the help of your company, with the help of clinicians around you. I think all therapists want is an informed ATP supplier who's willing, who's willing to learn. And I think an experienced ATP supplier just wants a therapist, kind of the same thing, who is informed about being a therapist, which they should be, and willing to learn about how they apply those therapy skills to um, the field of assistive technology. And, and both ways, both ways it can be tricky. It's, you know, sit, listen, learn, pay attention to the therapist if you're the supplier and the supplier if you're the therapist. And everybody better have their eyes straight on, straight on the client because the client's the one who rules the show. <laughs> Do you have that conversation with ATPs that you train and teach or are you not focused on that? Oh, no, we do. Oh, good. Actually, I'm personally very focused on that because I have I've been privileged to work with so many very fine ATPs. So I sort of organically understand how that clinical team uh, really needs to work for the benefit of the client. And then, of course, teaching to sit and listen to the client because out of all the books I've read, lectures I've been to, there's almost nothing that informs me and by extension the supplier more than the information that you get and store from clients over the years that you do this that then helps inform your interventions all along the way. You're kind of in a unique position. You've you've been an OT for years with hands-on patients and all of the things that you've published. Now that you're working for a provider, does that feel different? I have been so fortunate with the jobs that I have had. I mean, I just, I, I look back and I think, like, how could that be that I just sort of ended up in the right places at the right times? So when I was ready to leave the clinic in 2015 and physically couldn't 
I just couldn't see that many clients every day anymore. I just couldn't. And I knew it was time to, to do something else with uh, my skills. I was very fortunate that uh, New Motion happened to be looking to expand their education program. So is it is it different? I mean, of course, it's that's completely different. It's it's a corporation. Not that a hospital is not a corporation, but when you go from sort of the the clinical environment, which just has a different feel, to an environment where you have to use your skills to influence as many ATPs, suppliers, and therapists as you can is is it's really a different it's a different frame of mind and frame of reference for me but it's a very good one it's certainly overdue and certainly a needed position i mean that you can influence atps to understand the brain of a therapist that's that's very important <laughs> really important and it's 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 cool that that you're in that position to do that it is uh one of the slides i have when we're talking about clinical communication and you know, appropriate communication with clinicians um, is a slide of, of uh, aliens. <laughs> I think as clinicians, uh, we forget how many things we take for granted from being in a hospital environment. If you happen to work for a hospital-based clinic, it's just such a different environment. And just as me going into a corporation was a completely different environment with a completely different set of vocabulary. I try to keep that in mind as we're teaching the ATPs because it's the same thing. It's a whole different vocabulary. It's a whole different culture. And if each each understands the other's culture and vocabulary at least, I think you're a long way down the road to being useful for your client. How have you seen the provision of seating and mobility evolve since 1980 when you were working at the Cripple Children's School? <laughs> wow. So we've gone from making everything by hand, and that's not an exaggeration. I, I, you know, when I talk to young audiences of ATPs and therapists, they look at us like, you made everything from hand. What do you mean? You, you mean you took it off? No, no, we did not take it off the shelf. Literally, we made it by hand. So this is, and I thought about this a lot. This is I think one of the biggest things that have changed, technology nonwithstanding. Mm -hmm. When I used to see clients, and I used to see at the beginning at the uh, Rehab Engineering Center at the University of Tennessee, I saw two clients a day. <laughs> and that seemed like a lot. Uh, we would evaluate them. They would get their approval. They would come back in, and we would spend almost all day with them. Now, the difference is nowadays you see somebody, you evaluate them. If you have an entire hour, you're lucky and you have to make a lot of decisions um, rather quickly. Some of that has taken away from the interaction between the clinical team and the client because things have to get done. I feel lucky in that we had to pay very close attention to the client, what they were saying, what they were doing, what their personal care assistants were doing with them, because I had to be able to explain to the technician how to make the stuff. Like, okay, we want this here. Do you see how that goes there? And, that, and watch me when I'm doing this. So I feel like we had the absolute gift of time with our clients. And that gift of time 
I think allowed me to understand from a very early age and very early in the assistive technology journey, kind of what was the most important thing. So yes, the technology has changed a lot. And I kind of laughed because over the weekend, I finally sat down and watched Crip Camp. I don't know if you're familiar with that um, Netflix movie. I'm not. I think I've seen it go by. Do you recommend it? Oh, highly. Highly. Crip Camp. Okay. All right. It it reminded me of things that I had totally forgotten. Basically, uh, starting out with the, the very roots of the disability civil rights movement, spearheaded by Judy Human, Justin Dart, and others. Now, Judy Human happens to be a focus in this particular thing, but it starts out in the early 70s in a little tiny camp in upstate New York in the Catskills, I believe, where these kids who had never met anybody else like them had the opportunity to come to this camp run by quote-unquote hippies to just be kids. I didn't even know what to say at the end, but you know, you look at the you look at the technology, and it, I mean, it was really it was really funny. It's clear that you know things were built by hand, and whatever worked worked. But it worked. There there were some things that were actually better in terms of everybody coming together for a common cause as opposed to now. And I guess the same thing can be said for many different parts of of medicine. Yeah, things have changed. <laughs> When you say you made things by hand, you mean bent, you're bending metal? Well, I was not bending metal. <laughs> but, but you were telling somebody what you wanted it to do. Yeah, it, it was a combination of a sort of manufacturing um, techniques that the University of Tennessee was trying to employ. Uh-huh. And then actually, yes, bending metal, bending plastic, screwing things together, figuring out how to make it fit on the chrome frame, 65-pound wheelchair frames that we had. Yeah. And then, you know, as you, as you think about it, because of de- demands from clients, clinicians, engineers, suppliers, when we all, you know, started coming together at things like the Resna conferences and the International Seating Symposium, Symposia, manufacturers started to respond with um, products. It was like it was like a small town. Uh, you you almost knew everybody who was involved in the field around the country because you met them at these conferences. A lot of the manufacturers at that time were basically mom and pops. I mean, Whitmire Biomechanics. When that first started, you could literally call Jody Whitmire and say, "Hey, you know, I got this client and I need this headrest." Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was it was just such a different culture. And that's what reminded me of Crip Camp. It's sort of a culture of people coming together toward a common cause. You see the need and you, you want to make it better. And that's, that's kind of what happened in the field of assistive technology, which later became complex rehab technology. What, if any, frustrations then do you have with manufacturers or elations? What are the, what's the good? What's the bad? Is there anything that manufacturers should be doing differently or better? That is a very broad brush question. And it's a hard and it's a hard one to answer because the manufacturers, along with everybody else in this field and anywhere in the medical field, are are guided by uh, codes and reimbursement for codes. So there is a difference between what could possibly be possible and what is realistic. 
depending on what can be reimbursed. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, actually, the um, the iBot is, is one example of an innovative idea and a really cool product that didn't fit into uh, coding the way it's reimbursed. So I, I, I can't really say bad things about manufacturers or suppliers or therapists because we're, we're all working within the system that we have. Not that we're all not, you know, lobbying Congress and, and becoming involved in that regard. But in the meantime, we're working within the system that we have. And I guess everyone's jumping on the separate benefit category bandwagon, which is sorely needed. One of the clinical groups at the forefront of the lobbying efforts, of course, is the Clinician Task Force, mm-hmm. headed up by Kathy Carver. And they have done a, obviously, this was started by um, Laura, oh, Laura Cohen, sorry, Laura. <laughs> it was started by Laura Cohen many years ago. And it's a, a very directed, hardworking group of therapists from across the country who are looking at what needs to be done from the client viewpoint. You know, how can we help work with our clients and help facilitate uh, what they need from a legislative viewpoint and also from the educational standpoint, because our field is not getting any younger and it's up to us to bring new people into the field. I was able to talk with Kathy Carver. She was she was pretty interesting. I, I enjoyed that conversation. Yes, she is very interesting. She's got a lot of energy. <laughs> What's the outlook for people that need mobility? People that already have wheelchairs and people that will need wheelchairs. What do you mean by the outlook? Is the provision of mobility going to be pretty much the same? You go to a clinic and you sit with your therapist and you have an ATP and you get fitted and then you drive away and hope hope that you get get it reimbursed. I mean, is that is that model going to exist at infinitum? Um, so actually that model doesn't exist solely currently. I mean, there are a lot of private practice therapists, home health therapists, community-based therapists who all, who also do seating and wheel mobility evaluations um, with their ATP suppliers. And I think that there is a place for all of those things. I mean, not everybody lives near clinics like I used to work for. Some people live near no clinics. So then, then what do you do? Do you just not have that? Um, I also think that the importing of uh, telehealth into the entire conversation for a certain percentage of clients is and has already, from the conversations I've had with therapists in the field, really been able to expand their reach into the community in a way that they have not been able to before. I actually see in some ways that has gotten a little bit better because the choices are there for a certain percentage of clients. Does that mean remote evaluations? Yes, remote evaluations have been taking place all over the country for a certain percentage of clients. It's obviously not appropriate for everybody, but it is for a certain percentage. And one of the loud and clear things I've heard from therapists in the field is being able to have eyes on to someone's home and watching them function within their home. Because if you're a clinic-based therapist, chances are you don't really get to leave the clinic because your job is there. Being involved in perhaps a fitting, even if it's in the clinic, and then maybe doing a telehealth follow-up appointment so that you can actually see how the client is functioning with their equipment in their home 
I mean, these are the things that therapists in the field are telling me that they are super excited about. That is exciting. I hope that translates into something very, very positive as a, as a positive outcome of this whole coronavirus madness. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, yes, I do too. I really do. What do you think is the most exciting thing about the future of CRT? What do I think is the most exciting thing about the future of CRT? Well, I mean, I hate to be a broken record, but I really do think telehealth is, is one of those things. And not that telehealth has never been around. I mean, Mark Schmaler at the University of Pittsburgh has been doing research grants on telehealth since, oh my gosh, maybe the late 1990s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. It seems like, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars aligned and we have much better technology than we used to, to be able to, uh, to be able to handle that. I, and I really do think that that is a huge differentiator for our clients. I think as time goes on, the whole CRT community is much more focused on legislation. So I have to hope that some things will be better funded, such as seat elevators, for example, some things that are considered not necessary right now. I kind of see this field coming together in a way that I personally haven't seen in a very long time, perhaps since the early to mid-80s, late 70s, that can only really benefit our clients, which is the whole reason that we do this to begin with, is because we know there's a need and the need has to be filled. The other side of that question is, what do you think the industry's biggest problem is? What do we need to work on? Oh my goodness, what do we need to work on? Well, I don't really think that there is a big problem, but there's there's a continuing need. And one of the reasons that I enjoy education is because there is a continuing need all the time to educate new suppliers, new therapists, to bring them into the fold, mm -hmm. to ensure that they understand what they're doing and why they're doing it for the benefit of their clients. So, I, I, I mean, I see that as not a problem, but an ongoing need. Yeah, it's an ongoing need. Yeah, well, there doesn't have to be a problem. I was just interested in, in <laughs> what you thought. Do you have any pearls of wisdom? Personally, I, I mean, I, I am obviously personally extremely invested in CRT. It is of personal interest to me with all the thousands of clients that I have seen. If I can just get across, if I can just facilitate teaching people how to, how to listen and teaching people the skills that they need in a very, very fast-paced medical field to allow the clients the time to get what they need. You can't have seen thousands of folks over your career and observe the amazing effects of the application of complex rehab technology when it's done correctly and not feel that strongly about it. I will absolutely never forget the first time way back when that I put a tiny little person who was about 18 months old in a, in a powered chair and, and they drove. It's pretty moving. Only after listening to, at, at Bresna, to Charlene Butler, who was basically uh, one of the people who started doing early research and early mobility, and Karen Paulson, who was a psychologist from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. And having never thought that, wow, yeah, that makes sense. I'm an OT. Why did I not consider that I should probably be trying to put this child in a power chair because they're 18 months old? 
and they would have been walking already. It, it's an amazing thing. And it's an amazing thing when the parents or the clients themselves come back and tell you stories about how cool this is that they now have something that allows them to participate. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I've seen a number of those situations. I remember seeing a small girl, maybe she was three or four, drive her chair, a very heavy permobile, maybe C400 back, back then, and she was driving it with a head array, which I can't do. I tried. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It was amazing to see this little girl just grin on her face. Just It was really good. Is there something you want to say that we haven't talked about? I don't think so, Bill. As long as my passion for the whole thing comes across, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> well, your passion comes through loud and clear. Susan, thank you for spending time with me today. It was great. Well, thank you. And that, my friends, is Susan Johnson-Taylor. New Motion got very lucky when Susan took the job as educator. Well, that's all for now. Please join us for more episodes of Talk Rehab. I'm Bill Nolting. Thanks for listening.